The following message was given at Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. Let's go to the Lord together in prayer. Father in heaven, at this hour we call upon you for your divine help as we consider this passage before us. We pray for that blessing of the Holy Spirit, apart from which your word would not be blessed to us. But we ask that you would be with both speaker and hearer, that your grace, your wisdom, your power would superintend your word, your words of life and truth. We ask that it would be profitable to our souls for the building up of us together in love, for our conformity into Christ's image, that we may all the more glorify you in thought, word, deed. We ask for the power of your Spirit at this time, Father, that you would give us that help that only you can give. We long for the pure milk of the Word. We need it. Apart from it, we would perish. And so, Father, we ask you to bless us now. Bless us, your people. Bless us for Christ's sake. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Have you ever been in a spot in your life where you just didn't quite fit in anywhere? You didn't really have an identity. Maybe you're at a point in your life now where you don't really know who you are or your place in this world. You have had hopes and dreams for certain things that have not yet come to fruition, and you're wondering, now what? Maybe you have a conflicted identity or you're conflicted because of sins or specific sins that you have committed. Maybe sins you've committed in the past that continue to haunt you today. Maybe you're struggling with sin and you're wondering, am I even a Christian? How can I call myself one? Uh, Maybe you are suffering because of sin committed against you that causes you to feel defiled, afraid. And you can't seem to shake that identity. Well, this is where our passage in Esther helps us out. Uh, We have both Esther and Mordecai. They're in the godly line, but they have been taken from their home. They're living in a dark kingdom. And this dark kingdom takes Esther and has her set aside her Jewish identity by engaging in sinful activity. She doesn't really fit in anywhere. But Scripture brings up her identity as part of the covenant people of God at key places, very key places, which reveals who she really is before God. And therefore, this teaches us that in dark moments, at dark times, whether we are sinning or have been sinned against, we are to always remember our unchanging identity as sons and daughters of God. And that God is always at work for our good, even when it seems most hidden. And so we're going to see the story in 
in two parts. First is a wicked plan, and second is a conflicted identity. The first, a wicked plan. And we pick up uh, where we left off the story last week from chapter 1. If you remember from chapter 1, there was this large party. And at this large party, you would have uh, the men in, in one area and the women in another area. And after the men had been drinking freely for a while, they would invite the concubines to come in and to do sinful things, sinful erotic things. Well, after seven days of drinking, and the king is affected by his wine, he calls for Queen Vashti to come in and show off her beauty. Now, this is not, hey, just come join us, come walk before us uh, completely dressed. Rather, uh, he is asking her to come in and do what the concubines would do in this pagan kingdom. And of course, she rightfully refuses to come. God never asks us to submit to sin. But Ahasuerus, who's drunk both on wine and power, was enraged and made a decree that she would not be allowed to come into his presence. Now the party's over. He's no longer filled with wine. And the dust has settled. And his anger has settled down as well. And our chapter begins by saying he remembered these things, it seems to be with some regret, at least some sinful regret. I don't have a queen now. What should I do? And this is where the king's young, notice young, men have a suggestion for him. This is not the wise and good advice of some older sages. No, this is the evil and lustful advice of some young men with youthful passions who are pagans. They suggest gathering all the beautiful young virgins of the kingdom to be presented to the king, and whoever pleases him can become queen in Vashti's place. Now, as we'll see in just a moment, this involves more than just simply a beauty pageant. Uh, this uh, is going to be sinful. This is exactly what you would expect out of a pagan uh, kingdom. And, of course, this pagan king is pleased by this advice. Now, we're going to have two groups of women here. Okay, that the first group is going to be a group of women who don't want to do this. Uh, they're being taken against their will. However, they don't see that they have a choice uh, unless they want to face consequences like Queen Vashti did. The other group, however, in this kingdom would actually be excited about this. Uh, to be selected for a chance to be queen is, the is one of the highest honors in a pagan society. And so they would gladly want to go along with this. Uh, women have lined up for people like Hugh Hefner, who without any outward coercion have done a lot of sinful things uh, in bringing in women. So we have both in this group. And then the narrative turns to introduce to us the main characters of the story, uh, Esther and Mordecai, which brings us to the second part of the story. And that is a conflicted identity. Uh, first, we're introduced to Mordecai in verses 5 through 6. And Mordecai is first called a Jew, so that means he's part of God's uh, covenant people. And his lineage is traced back to Kish. And if you remember, Kish is King Saul's dad. Sometimes we gloss over these genealogies, but this is extremely important for understanding the book of Ruth. Because whereas Mordecai is tied back to King Saul, we are going to be introduced to Haman 
in chapter 3. In Haman, his genealogy is given, and he is tied to Agag. Remember Agag? From 1 Samuel 15, God told King Saul to kill the Amalekites because God said he would have war with them. And who was king of the Amalekites at that time? Agag. So right here, what we have is we have a battle between two seeds. And that battle, that hostility, didn't begin with God and the Amalekites. It goes all the way back to Genesis 3.15. The seed of the woman versus the seed of the serpent. That's how this story fits in the storyline of the Bible. That's what's going on here. You have the battle of the two seeds, and that's, this is just an expression here in Esther. And this gives us encouragement because when it seems like God is hitting, it seems like the enemy's winning, it seems like the world is, is out of control, we know who's going to end up winning. But in any case, while Mordecai is a Jew, he has another identity, a conflicting one. His name's Mordecai. This is not a Hebrew name. It's a Persian name. And he's living in Susa, the capital of Persia, or the, the Persian Empire. Uh, this is because his family was exiled under Jeconia, as verse 6 says. This would have happened about 597 B.C. Uh, this time here in Esther is about 482 B.C. So this is some 115 years later. He is only known exile. He is not living in his homeland. He's a stranger in a foreign place. So not only do we see in this passage young virgins being taken from their home, we see even before this that the Jews were taken from their home. And then all of this comes together with Esther. She is, she is first identified in verse 7. And she has two names. Her Hebrew name is Hadassah, which means myrtle, probably referring to her beauty. But she has a Persian name as well, Esther. Uh, this is Persian for star, or Babylonian for Ishtar, uh, a pagan god, possibly of a specific star. And Esther is an orphan who Mordecai, her cousin, took as his own daughter. So in a different sense, she is cut off from her identity. She, she's cut off from really almost all of her identity. She no longer has fa a father or mother. She's in exile. And then as we see, she is going to be taken by the king. In verse 7, it says that Esther was taken by the king's official to try out for being the next queen. Now we notice that verse 8 says the maidens were gathered, but Esther was taken. Gathered can have the implication that the maidens came willingly and were just gathered in. But Esther was taken. And that leaves out the implication of coming willingly. Now she may not have been uh, physically accosted or dragged. However, she still would not have come of her own volition. She would not have initiated this. But then we do see her exert effort in this situation. Verse 9 says that she won Haggai's favor, the man in charge of uh, the women in this harem. Now, the, the way this is put is not that she found favor in his sight, but
but that she won favor in his sight. And there's a difference in Scripture. Uh, she won his favor, which means she earned it. And so she quickly advanced to the top, as the end of verse 9 says. And she had to compromise her Jewish religion in the process. Verse 9 says that she was given her portion of food. This would have been a food specific to, uh, to make her, her look most attractive, but it would have been food that was against Jewish dietary laws, which were still commanded by God during this time. So whereas Daniel refused this stuff, uh, Esther received them. And this leads to the, to the conflict of her true identity being mentioned in verse 10. She did not make her people known that she was a Jew. Now this is because it's at the command of Mordecai. Now why did Mordecai command her not to make her people known? Well, because it seems like he was concerned that uh, it would endanger her and, and the Jews if she, if she did. And this is uh, indicated by the fact that in verse 11, Mordecai would check on her daily to know of her welfare. So Esther is in a very difficult situation where she is living a different life than her true identity. Now, the, the main event that all the young virgins had been preparing for is in verses 12 through 14. And this is why I say this is more than a beauty pageant. Uh, the event was to go into King Ahasuerus. It's a biblical idiom for a sexual relation. And each woman had her turn. And this event was so important to the Persians that it took a whole year to prepare the women for this. Uh, they were given some treatments to exfoliate their skin, remove blemishes to look as healthy as possible. And also in preparation for this was choosing one's clothing in verse 13. And we also see that this event is sexual in nature by what verse 14 says. It says, in the evening she would go in, and then in the morning she would return. So this is something that happened overnight. Another indication is in verse 14 where it says that they would go into the second harem in custody, in custody of a different eunuch. And what is the second harem? Well, the verse says that it's the harem of the concubines. So they are no longer virgins after the night with the king. And she would not be called to the king again unless she pleased him. And now comes Esther's turn. Notice how Scripture begins this event. Verse 15. I want you to, this, this is, it seems like it's a detail that doesn't matter, but it comes at a key spot, and it helps us to see the application here. Verse 15. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king. Now, were we already given Esther's identity? Yeah, we were already in this chapter. Why give her identity again at this very spot? When it's her turn to go into the king. Well, it is to juxtapose her identity as a Jew, as a member of God's covenant people, with what is about to happen. This is truly in conflict with her identity. And as I'm going to show in just a moment, what Scripture is showing here is that no matter what happens, 
whether we do it or whether it's done to us, our identity as a child of God remains the same. And that is something we need to embrace and hold on to. Nevertheless, she applied herself to the situation. Verse 15 says she only wore what Haggai advised her. Now what this is, is it's you get to choose the clothing that, that the woman thought would most please the king. And Esther asked Haggai what that was and would only wear what he told her. And that's because if there's anyone who would know best, it would be Haggai, the king's eunuch. And we see in verses 17 through 18 that Esther pleased the king more than any of the thousands of other women. The king was instantly pleased with Esther and made her queen. A great feast was thrown uh, for her. And he even, uh, instead of taking taxes, started to give to people instead, showing how pleased the king was. And then Esther's identity is brought up again in Scripture, verses 19 through 20, except it focuses on the fact that her true identity remained hidden. There's a lot of play here in this text about one's identity and how this is conflicted. Now, what are we to make out of all of this? The first is that we we have to face the reality that we live in a dark, sin-cursed world. There is sin everywhere here, from forcing women to sin, to women willingly wanting to sin for an advantage. We see both of that in this world. Secondly, Scripture does not expressly say where Esther was in all of this. Uh, her, her thoughts are not given. Her feelings and motives during this period are not given. And this has caused many Jewish scribes to add to the text of Scripture or rewrite it because they are scandalized by Esther, a Jew, being with an uncircumcised man. Uh, they have added to the story statements from Esther where she announces her hatred for this king's bed. One rabbi in the Middle Ages came up with a story where God hid Esther and had a spirit take her place instead. But we are not told either way what was going through her mind. It's probably why the Jewish scribes felt like they had to add something to it. She was taken by order of the king. It was against her will. Yet she made the most out of it and excelled in every area beyond all women. Was she doing this because she didn't think she had a choice? Or did she begin to embrace a pagan identity? And we don't know Esther's motives or thoughts. And usually when there's nothing explicitly mentioned, uh, we tend to read our situation into it. But our situation is not going to neatly fit into this. And it doesn't really neatly fit into any category. Whether she willingly sinned or was purely sinned against or both, Scripture reveals this. No sin is part of her true identity. This is implied by Scripture reminding us of Esther's true identity as part of the people of God at key moments in the story. It doesn't matter what she did or what happened to her. Her identity as a member of God's covenant people remained unchanged. And this reminds us that our identity as, as God's children remains unchanged no matter what we do, what happens to us, 
or what situation we find ourselves in. Whether we are the ones sinning or we are being sinned against, we are never defined by that sin. We, we may fall into sin and still struggle with it and, and feel unclean and have that conflicted feeling within us. How can I do this and be a child of God? And while we are called to repent, yet our identity remains the same in Christ. This is why we see in the book of Hebrews that so-called Hall of Faith. You see some of the people on that list? Kind of scratch, you kind of scratch your head, right? Samson? Really? David? I mean, we know what David did. I mean, not only did he commit adultery, he hired out a hit on one of his most faithful servants, a non-Israelite at that, to cover up his sin. Are you kidding me? He should have been kicked off that list. Is there a naughty list somewhere? And yet, God does not bring up their sin or put them on a naughty list. Rather, He puts them on a list of those whom He commends. And that is because God remembers our sins no more. He does not see us in light of our sin. And this also includes the sins that have been done to us. Not only do our own sins make us feel defiled, sins done to us can make us feel defiled. However, not only are we not defined by our own sins, who we truly are is not defined by what others have done to us. We may feel defiled. We may feel unworthy. We may feel like damaged goods because of others' sin against us. Like with Esther, we may have had our purity lost, whether being sinned against or by sinning ourselves. Nevertheless, even in this act, Esther is still identified as a daughter of Abihail, a daughter in the godly line, the godly kingdom, a daughter of the true king. That is her identity. And beloved, that is our identity. We who are in Christ. Our purity, worth, and holiness as a dearly loved child of God can never be taken from us no matter what happens. No person has the power to take that from us no matter what they have done or how they have treated us because our identity as a child of God can never be taken from us. And just as with Esther, God still uses sin and darkness to bring about His good and holy purposes. We may not always know what that is. It may remain a mystery to us. But as we go in the story of Esther, we see that God used Esther to save His people. God uses even sinful situations for a glorious and good purpose. He can use sin done to you to bring comfort and sympathy that others who are in a similar situation or who have been similar, similarly treated. He can also use your sinful past to, to reach those who have also gone down the same similar sinful past and thinking. This is, after all, how God used the Apostle Paul. You know, in uh, 1 Timothy 
where Paul calls himself the chief of sinners? How do we tend to read that? Uh, we, we, we tend to read that as, this is a moral application for me. I need this. If I'm going to be humble, I need to say this. Okay, repeat after me. I'm the chief of sinners. And like, I really need to, to believe that. You know what I think Scripture is saying there? That Paul really is the chief of sinners. Because he persecuted the church of God. He, he, he gave oversight to the first Christian martyrdom. Now, that doesn't mean that we can you know, compare ourselves to others and come out on top. But what Scripture is saying there is Paul really was the chief of sinners. And Paul says, the reason I as the chief of sinners was shown mercy is so that those who would hope in Christ later on would believe on Him. Because if I, as a persecutor of the church, can be shown mercy and be used of God to write part of the New Testament, then God would forgive anybody. That's the point of that. And God can even use the things that you have done in the past for the purpose of reaching others with the mercy of Christ. God is a God who works through evil and sin. And we need to remember that our identity before God is not our sin. Not sins done to us. Not our earthly situation where we're wondering, where do I fit in? What am I doing with my life? I had all these hopes and dreams and they haven't come true. Now what? None of that ultimately is our identity. But we need to remember who we are as children of the King. And this is because the reason we have this precious identity is because Christ was taken by the wicked kingdom of this world to face open shame, to pay for all our sins, so that we would be justified, declared righteous in His sight, adopted as His children, having that work applied to us so that we would be regenerated by the Holy Spirit and we would be transferred from the kingdom of darkness, who we used to be, into the kingdom of light, who we now are, clothed in the righteousness of Christ, pure His sight, you may have been defiled by sin. You may have defiled yourself with sin. You may feel like you don't fit in anywhere. But if you are a son or daughter of the King, you always have a place and a purpose, even if it seems conflicted or hidden at the time. But may we remember the words of Paul in Colossians 3. Your life is hidden in Christ, but when Christ who is your life appears, you also will appear with Him in glory. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that You would help us. I know there's many who have been through such heartbreaking, difficult, unspeakable situations. Father, I do ask that you would give a great measure of comfort and grace to them to know that they are pure in your sight, they're your children, and that they are daughters and sons of you, the King. That this identity would be so implanted in them that all other competing, conflicting identities whether things we have done or things done to us 
uh, would fade away. And this would become so prominent that we find great peace and hope in it. Great peace and hope that when you appear, we also will appear with you in glory. Thank you for this gospel hope. In Christ's name, amen. You have been listening to a message from Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. To receive more information about Trinity Bible Church or to support the ministry, go to tbcwyoming.com. That is tbcwyoming.com.